Now, this morning, if you are new here, we are so glad that you are visiting because we are actually starting a brand new series entitled Hidden Christmas. And the reason why we named this series Hidden Christmas is actually for two reasons. One is because we, as a, as a teaching team, decided to base this series on a book written by Tim Keller that came out, uh, I think, about a year ago called Hidden Christmas. He wrote it for last Christmas. And so really well-written book and well-thought-out. And so we thought, hey, this is a good opportunity to name our series after after that. But another reason why we're calling it Hidden Christmas is because we believe in light of Scripture that there's a hidden meaning to Christmas that a lot of people just don't see. And that's either because you've never been taught it or because you have forgotten it. And so our goal this morning is to, not just this week, but for the next few weeks, is to rediscover uh, uh, the true meaning of Christmas. Christmas is not about presents. It's not about Santa. It's not about uh, holiday music. It's about Jesus. And we want to make sure that we find the real meaning of Christmas and not lose sight of it with everything else that's going on. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So for those of you who don't know, that's the genealogy of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus and taking a closer look at it. And the thing about a genealogy is that if you know anything about genealogies, they tend to be very boring. And uh, many times you just skip over them because you don't really feel like that they're that consequential. But what we're going to see is that this isn't boring at all and that it's an essential part of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. Now, I'm not going to actually read the passage just because 17 verses is a lot. And 17 verses of a genealogy feels like 47 verses, okay? So I'm not going to do that to you. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to reference it as we go. Um, but just make sure you go to Matthew 1, uh, 1 through 17. And if you're with me, say amen. All right, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus, this hidden ancestry. The name of the series is Hidden Christmas. The name of this message is The Hidden Ancestry. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus under two headings. The first thing we're going to see in this passage is we're going to look at the people of Jesus, the people of Jesus. This, this genealogy tells us a lot about the type of people who Jesus chooses to affiliate with. So the first thing we're going to see is we're going to see the people of Jesus. Then the second truth that we're going to see this morning is, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one, is we are going to look at the promise of Jesus. So this genealogy teaches us two things. It teaches us about the people of Jesus, and then it also teaches us about the promise of Jesus. All right? So let's begin by looking at the first truth, the first principle, which is the people of Jesus. And what I want to do is there's two, there's two points that I'm going to have under this first truth. As we look at the people of Jesus, I want you to see the reality of it, and I want you to see the rejects in it, okay? We're going to take a closer look at each one of those. But what I want to do as we look at the people of Jesus is I want to reread verse 1. Well, not reread. I haven't read it yet, but verse 1 and then verse 17, okay? The, the beginning and the end of this passage. In verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Then at the end, verse 17, it says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, from David to the exile to Babylon, and from four, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay. Now, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the reality of this. And here's what I mean by the reality of this. This actually happened. Okay. This really happened. And the reason why that's important is because if it really happened, then that means that Jesus is a real person who came from real people and had a real family. 
And just, spoiler alert, it was a really messed up family, okay? But the reason why I want to start with that, the reason why I want to make sure that we start with this being a real thing that really happened is because I think that's one of the things that we are quick to forget, that this is real. Like, this actually happened. And so the reason why Matthew starts with a genealogy is because Matthew wanted you to see, he wants you to see that this isn't, this isn't a once-upon-a-time fairy tale, but this was a real person who really lived at a specific time. And for you to know, all you got to do is look at the genealogy, and the genealogy will reveal that he was a real person. Now, to us, genealogies don't really mean much, right? Because in our culture, it's all about the individual and what you do for yourself. Your family of origin affects you a little bit, but pretty much it's up to you. And in Western culture, it's all about the individual. It's not about the traditional way about what your family, your family name or what they bring. Most of the time, it's about you and what you do. So whether you come from a great family or a, a bad family, essentially is up to you. But in Jesus' day, in, this, in the ancient Near East, your family was everything. It wasn't about the individual. It was about the group. And so the family you came from was very important. And so genealogies, kings would always be using genealogies in order kings and, 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 and lords and, and famous people, well, not famous people, but people of, of influence would always want you to know their genealogy because if you knew their pedigree, then you would be more likely to accept them, right? They didn't have LinkedIn. They didn't have Facebook profiles. They didn't have other ways to, you know, to, to, to show how great they are, right, with their, with their Instagram posts. And so the way you showed how great you were was by looking and by, by describing and unpacking for people and making very public your genealogy. Now, the reason why genealogies were so important in Jesus' day is because a genealogy for a Jew gave you three things that were very, very important. The first thing is that a genealogy would tell people who your family was, okay? Now, the reason why that's important is because Jews came from, essentially, from 12 people. There was a tribe of, of there, was a, there was 12 tribes of Israel. So your goal and your job as a Jew was to always know which tribe you came from. I came from here, or I came from here. And your genealogy was one of the ways that you would describe that. Now, some tribes were considered superior to other tribes. So if you were one of the good tribes, you wanted people to know, I am from this tribe. And this is who I am, and this is what I've done, and this is who my parents are. You would always want people to know what your tribe was. So one of the reasons why your genealogy mattered was because of your family. But another reason was because of your finances. Here's why. Whenever someone would die, especially if it was someone wealthy, Everyone and their mom would show up and say, oh, he was my great uncle or my grandpa or whatever, because everyone, everyone wanted his property. It wasn't so much money as much as it was property and, and livestock and precious clothes and, and, and silver, right? So you, 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 everybody would come out of the woodworks and say, hey, that's my great auntie twice removed, you know, give, give, give me the money. And so what you would do is you would have to prove through your genealogy that you were actually a relative and a descendant of this person. So your genealogy was even important when it came to finances. So it was important because of your family. It was important because of your finances. But lastly, it was important because of your faith. And, and here's what I mean by that. If you were not a Jew, then there were certain things you couldn't do at the temple in Jerusalem. And so what they would do is the Gentiles, the people who were non-Jews, could only go so far. Women could only go so far. If you wanted to go deeper into the temple and really participate in the worship, you had to be willing and able to prove you were a Jew. And the only way you can do that was through your genealogy. And so genealogies were very, very important. And so the reason why Matthew begins with a genealogy is because he wants you to see that Jesus was a real Jew who really lived. And with the way he, the way, there's actually two genealogies in the New Testament. There's the one that Matthew writes. There's the one that Luke writes. And both of them write their genealogies for totally different reasons. Matthew writes his genealogy and he goes through Joseph 
Luke writes his genealogy and he goes through Mary. And what, what, what Luke wants to see, wants you to see, is that Jesus is the blood of Mary. It comes from the blood of Mary, the bloodline of Mary, right? And then what he wants you to see with Joseph is that Jesus comes from the royal line. He gets his royalty from this one and then the, the blood connection from, from his mom, okay? So they write their genealogies for totally different reasons, but for equally important reasons, okay? So here's why this is, this is why this is important. The reason why the reality of this genealogy, the, re the reason why the reality of Jesus being a real person in a real place with real family members is so important, there's actually two reasons. If you understand the reality of this, it should impact you in two ways. The first thing it should change is it should change the way you view God's timing, God's timing. Then the second thing it should do is it should change the way you view your thinking, okay? If, the, if this is really a person who really lived and really died and really resurrected, who had a real family, then it should change the way you view God's timing and it should change the way you view your thinking. The first way that it should change is it should change the way you view God's timing. And here's what I mean. Most, mostly everyone here, maybe not all of you, I don't want to overspeak, but mostly everyone here is waiting for something. All of us, we have things that we're waiting for. Maybe it's something little, maybe it's something uh, big. Maybe you're a student and you're waiting to graduate. Maybe you're single and you're waiting to get married. Maybe you're uh, uh, sick and you're waiting for a test result. Maybe you're a parent and you're waiting for your prodigal. Maybe you have a financial situation and you're waiting for deliverance from that. But many times, at least in my life, I don't know about you, I, I always find myself waiting for things, sometimes small things, sometimes big things. What I want you to know is that regardless of how long you've been waiting for that thing, let's say it's been a few days or a few weeks, a few months, a few years, maybe even a few decades, however long it's been, these people waited way longer than you did. Okay? So like I said, I'm not sure what you're waiting for, but what I need you to know is that these people waited way longer than you did. You know why? Because none of you have lived 600 years. None of you have lived 1,000 years. None of you have lived 2,000 years. And it starts with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. And listen, all you got to do, there's, there's three parts to this genealogy. You see uh, 14, 14, and 14. And the last 14 is considered the intertestamental period. And when you look at the last part of the genealogy before it gets to Jesus, it's a bunch of no names that none of us have ever heard of because during the intertestamental period, there was no scripture being written. And many Jews considered it the dark ages of Israel because there was nothing going on, right? Just that section alone was 400 plus years. The United States of America isn't even that old yet. So think about how long these people waited. I'm, I'm just talking to you about the last part of the genealogy. 400 plus years. We're Americans. We've been here forever. No, 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 we haven't. Our nation isn't even 400 yet. And these people waited 400 years just from the last part of the genealogy, waiting for a deliverer, a savior to come and rescue them. So here's what I need you to know, guys. I don't know what you're waiting for. And I don't know if you're, if, you're, if you're being patient or impatient. I don't know what, what God's doing in all that. But I want you to know that waiting is not a waste. And God can do something in the waiting if you allow him to. A waiting period, in God's eyes, is never a wasted period. Okay? And just because God might delay, God will never disappoint. And there's been times in my life where I've been waiting for things. And if it was up to me, I'd have them right here and right there and right now. But the reality is God gave it to me when he felt I needed it. And it was always better than what I actually thought I needed. So God might delay, but he never disappoints. And so what I need you to know, and I might just be talking to a few people here this morning, but what I need you to know is that you should never judge God through the lens of your calendar. 
You should never judge God through the lens of your watch. Because God's timing is different from your timing. And if you feel like you've had to wait, try being a Jew. Okay? So that's the first implication of this. If, if this is really a thing and these people really waited as long as they did, then it should change the way we view God's timing. But listen, not only should it change the way we view God's timing, it should also change the way we view our thinking. And here's why this is so important. Because one of the things that Christianity is accused of is people will say, oh, I don't want to pursue Christianity. I don't want to take that step because it's all faith. It's all blind faith. And, and I'm not a blind faith person. I'm a, I'm a critical thinker. And I need facts. And I need reasons. And I need evidence. Well, here you have it. And Matthew is saying, look, I don't want you to have blind faith. I want you to take this genealogy and check on it. Do the research. Google it. Okay. He, he puts it in a, it's not a once upon a time thing, it's a this is a really, this thing really happened thing. And so he's saying, look, I don't want you to shut your brain off to come to Jesus. I want you to turn your brain on. There's nothing that you can bring critically to Jesus. There's no, there's no reasoning that you can bring to the Bible that the Bible cannot answer. Amen. And so if your reason for not considering Jesus is because you're a thinker, I would argue that the reason is because you haven't thought enough. Because the Bible is not scared of your questions. Okay? It should change the way you think. Matthew here is putting everything in a real place with real people, saying, go check it out. Think about it. Don't just blind faith, but just, just go think about it, is what Matthew says to you and to me. So the first thing we see as we look at this first point, the people of Jesus, is we see the reality of it. There's, this, these are real people. Uh, this is what Jesus was a, came from a real family who were really messed up. But the second thing that we see as we look at the people of Jesus, and this is probably my favorite point of the whole sermon, is that is the rejects who are in it. This, is, this thing is ridiculous. The list of people, the people who made it into this list, it's not a hall of fame. It's a hall of shame. Okay? There are some straight rejects in the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm going to prove it to you. Look what it says here in the passage. Look at some of the names that are being thrown around here, okay? So you see Tamar, verse 3. Well, Tamar was a woman who had sex with her father-in-law in order to have a kid. Then you look at a, 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 um, a Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who gave her, life, who gave her body up uh, for a living. Then you go down and you hear about um, uh, Uriah's wife in verse 6. Uriah's wife was Bathsheba, who had an adulterous affair with David. Then you look at David, who was a hot mess himself. You look at the Psalms and you think the dude's schizophrenic half the time. This was a hot mess. And then you get to the end of it and you have a whole bunch of nobodies from verse 12 through verse 16. I've never heard of any of those dudes in my life because none of those dudes are really well known. It was during the intertestamental period that no one cares about. So you have a bunch of nobodies and a bunch of sinners and a bunch of rejects. And what we see here is that those are the only type of people that Jesus saves. You know why? Because those are the only type of people there are. The reason why Jesus' genealogy is filled with sinful rejects is because that's the only type of people that exist. So if it didn't have sinful rejects, none of us would get in. Now here's the thing. Any Jew during this time would have looked at what Jesus is doing here 
And they would have understood the first part. Like any Jew, any, any of the original readers would have said, oh, okay, I get why you're giving a genealogy because your genealogy is how you establish who you are and what you've done. They would have understood the first part. What they wouldn't have understood is the ridiculous riffraff that he includes in the genealogy. You see, because since your genealogy was the only way you were able to prove your pedigree, it was the only way that you were able to prove you were somebody special, what they would do back then, which is what a lot of us do with our resumes when we apply for a job, is you purge the bad stuff and you promote the good stuff. Right? So we do. We, 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 we just, just, just a little bit, not too much, but just, just enough to make us look better. And so people would purge the bad stuff. They would take their genealogies and be like, man, I'm crossing that uncle out. That dude was crazy, you know? So you would purge the bad stuff and you would promote the good stuff. Actually, King Herod, who was a very famous king during this time, scholars say that his genealogy had major omissions from it. King Herod, I think, was half Edomite. And you see his genealogy and there's nothing about Edomites in his genealogy. Because to be an Edomite meant you were part on the wrong side of, you were born on the wrong side of the tracks. And so he just deleted, edited and deleted. I am fully Jew, King Herod said. See? So they understood the first part that he included a genealogy, but then would have been totally blown away by the fact that this brother says, uh, uh, he includes the people that he includes. They're like, why in the world would you include the people that you include? It's almost like Jesus does, instead of putting all the good people, he picks the worst people. He does the exact opposite of what any Jewish man would have done in his day. And Jesus, in this passage, he breaks three barriers just in 17 verses. The first thing he breaks is a gender barrier. Then the second thing he breaks is a racial barrier. And the third thing he breaks is a religious barrier. Gender, racial, religious. The first thing he breaks is a gender barrier because Jesus, in this genealogy, has women in it. Now, to us, modern-day Western Americans, of course, women and men are equal. But listen, the only reason why we believe that is because of Judo-Christianity. It's only because of Christianity that women are equal in America. It's not because we're progressive. It's because Jesus changed everything. See, before Jesus, any other religion, any other worldview, women were seen as second class at best and property at worst. And so all of a sudden, when you're making a genealogy, you would never, ever, ever, ever put a woman. No way. It doesn't matter who the woman was. You just wouldn't put a woman because women were seen as less than. Jesus shows up and puts not just one woman, he puts several women. And then the women that he puts aren't even the good ones. Like if you're going to put a woman, put Sarah in there, put Rebecca in there, put Eve in there. No, 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 no. He puts Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. He puts women that no one wanted anything to do with. Those are the people that he says he's from. And so the first thing Jesus does is he shows up and says, no, wait, wait. Everyone is made in the image of God. I came to die for everyone, not just men. And so I'm going to include the women who had a part in me being here. So the first barrier he breaks is he breaks the gender barrier. Now, the next barrier he breaks is he breaks a racial barrier because it says that there were many Gentiles that got in. Not only did he have women, he had Gentile women. Rahab and Tamar, uh, no, Rahab and Ruth were, were Gentiles. In those days, Gentiles were seen like dogs, like animals. Jews thought they were superior to anyone who was a non-Jew. Women and Gentiles were not allowed to testify in court because their testimony meant nothing to the Jews. They literally were not allowed to testify. As a Gentile, when you went to the temple, like I mentioned earlier, there was only so far you can go. There was a court of the Gentiles because you were not allowed to go in closer. 
because you are too filthy, you are too unclean, and you are too unfit. Jesus includes Gentiles, and some of the Gentiles are women. Okay? So the reason why the church is much more diverse than Judaism is because Jesus includes Gentiles. But listen, it's not just gender barriers. It's not just racial barriers. It's also religious barriers. Because here's the thing, even the people that would be acceptable, even the Jewish men that he includes, even they were a hot mess. So even the religious people that he puts, even the people that would be, would be in a hall of fame, the ones he picks are messed up people. David was crazy. That's why I've never, ever, ever have understood when a pastor gets up and says, I'm going to give you four ways to be more like David. One, the Bible calls us to be like Jesus, not David. And who the heck wants to be like David? <laughs> a murdering adulterer. So even the religious people he chooses are bad. He messes the whole thing up. I don't know who his PR guy is, but he should be fired. <laughs> Jesus does the exact opposite of what many of us would do, of what many of the original readers would have done. He has a family lineage of rejects. When you look at the list of people who come before Jesus, when you really take a closer look at their stories, it's like a Maury Povich episode, right? Like, it's like, you are not the father. You know what I mean? Like, it, it is a hot mess. I know none of the young people here know who Maury Povich is. They're like, who? who's Maury Povich? Huh? It's, it's on a television, guys. A television is a TV screen that you watch shows on. And there's commercials. Rejects are the only people Jesus includes because it's the only people that exist. So here's the thing. If that's true, that the genealogy of Jesus is filled with rejects, then how should that affect us today? I think there's two ways that it should affect us. It should affect the way we view our, our mess, our own mess, but it should also change the way we view our ministry, okay? Here's what I mean. When, when you understand that it's only mess, the people who are hot messes, it's only the rejects that make it in, then what that means is if you're here today and you are considering Christianity and you think that maybe the reason why you can't come to Jesus is because you're not good enough, I need you to know you're not good enough. But Jesus was good enough for you. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've came from. Some of us, we, we think we're sinners just because of the life we lived. Some of us, we think we're not good enough because of a season of our life or maybe a moment, a day or an hour of our life, something that we just wish we can take back and we say, there's no way Jesus can forgive me for that. I'm telling you that he can. You can't get far enough from Jesus for him not to rescue you. And so the first implication is that if you're a mess, that's fine. Actually, the requirement is that you, you admit you're a mess. If, if, if the genealogy of Jesus is filled with rejects, then that means that regardless of where you came from, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who your family is, there's a place for you at the table. Amen? That's the first implication. That if the genealogy of Jesus is filled with rejects, then we all have a seat at the table. But here's the other thing. And this is something that I pray for all the time as a pastor. If the genealogy of Jesus is filled with broken uh, uh, rejects and, and prostitutes and, and, and addicts and just people who are just have tons of issues. If, if it's filled with rejects, then I believe in light of scripture, our church should be filled with rejects as well. 
Listen, if Chai Village only has proper, religious, legalistic, everything, everything's together, people, we're not living out the gospel. Because if there's broken rejects in the genealogy of Jesus, there should be broken rejects in the body, in the church of Jesus. I don't know if you've gotten that vibe, but I hope you understand that that's the type of community we are. Only rejects are allowed. Amen. If you have it all together and everything looks great, this ain't the place for you. Okay? Only imperfect people. Not perfect people. Only imperfect people can come in. You know why, right? Because the dude that leads it is a reject. Seriously, that's why I preach the gospel every week. I don't preach the gospel. He ain't meant that quick. So um, check your heart, brother. Check your heart. So, so, uh, so seriously, the reason why I preach the gospel every week, I don't do it for you. I do it for me because I don't actually believe it. And every week I, I, I sin and I do wrong things and the enemy shows up and says, well, how are you going to preach this week, pastor? Why are you the guy? You're a hot mess. And every week I got to preach the gospel to myself. And every week I got to remind myself, I get up to preach not because of what I do for Jesus, but because of what he did for me. So this is a broken, imperfect place. And everyone's a reject here. And like I said, if you're not, then this might not be the place for you. Because if we're not sinners, we don't need a savior. So those are the first two uh, things that I wanted you to see. So as we see the people of Jesus, I wanted you to see the reality of it and the rejects in it. Now, the second thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the promise of Jesus. And in this passage, you see, looking at the people of Jesus is great, but if all we do is that, then this sermon will be about us. And that's not how we preach here at Tri-Village, right? So we can't just look at the people of Jesus. We also have to look at the promise of Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus shows that he is both the fulfillment of the promise, and as a result of that, there are implications to it. Because he's the fulfillment, there are implications, okay? So let's look at the fulfillment of the promise. Here's what it says. Let me reread just the same two parts again, because that's really where all our our stuff is coming from today. It says that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then jump to verse 17 again. It says, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So the first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that the Jews were waiting for, okay? Now, we might not know this because we aren't part of this culture, but one of the things that was happening in this culture is the Jews in Jesus' day were waiting and looking for a Messiah. They were waiting and looking. From the day they were born, they were taught that one day there was going to be a Messiah, that Messiah was going to deliver Israel from all their sins and from all their enemies and, and, and reign in a physical kingdom here on earth. And that's what they were looking for. But it wasn't just the people who were waiting and looking. It was the religious leaders who were uh, uh, interpreting the scriptures and studying the scriptures, looking for the Messiah who was going to deliver them. And so what ended up happening over time is, as since people were all looking for this individual, what ended up happening over time is they created almost like a checklist of what this Messiah would have to do in order for him to be the Messiah. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these qualifications that this individual was going to have to meet in order for him to prove that he was the Messiah. One of them was that he had to be born in Bethlehem, according to the book of Micah. 
right? There's so many others. I can't, there's so many others. But, 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 but they're all throughout Scripture, there's these things that this person, the Old Testament, that this individual was going to do, and in so doing was going to prove that he was the Messiah that everybody was looking for. But here's what's so fascinating, though. In the Old Testament, the passages about the Messiah were so confusing that a lot of rabbis didn't know what to do with it. Because on the one hand, they were expecting this conquering king who was going to be a, a, a king who was going to show up and have all this power and might. Right? But then there was other passages like Isaiah 53 where it said that he was going to suffer and die. And so the Jews had no idea what to do. And what a lot of rabbis in Jesus' day believed is that there was actually going to be two messiahs because they couldn't in their mind picture that one person was going to be both a conquering king and a suffering servant. They were expecting two because they just couldn't fit it in their mind. And so they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and they're looking. And in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells David, I'm going to give you a descendant, and he's going to come from the house of David, and he's going to reign forever. And David probably thought that was his son Solomon, but we know from the Bible that it wasn't Solomon that he made that promise to. So if it wasn't Solomon, then who could it be? Then in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing, looking back at the, the, uh, Genesis chapter 12, and he says in Galatians chapter 3 that there was going to be a seed of Abraham. Abraham's seed was going to be who all the blessing came to the world, and to the nations. So you have Abraham's seed and you had David's son. And the question is, who is this person? And what we discover in the genealogy is that that person was Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up and he's the greater David and the greater Abraham. He's the thing that all of us were looking for and we didn't even know we were looking for. Okay? Jesus comes and he fulfills the promise. He is the fulfillment of the promise. Now, here's the thing, okay? There's, there's, there's two ways in which Jesus fulfills the promise. There's actually three ways, but you're not ready for the third one yet, so I'm going to give it to you later, okay? So the first, the, two, the first two ways why Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, and I'm going to get a little bit technical here, so put your thinking caps on. Um, what, what, what scholars say is that when you look at the genealogy, it's broken up into 14, 14, 14. So it's 14 people, 14 people, 14 people. But what's interesting is that when you go back to the Old Testament, it wasn't 14. The number was actually a lot bigger. And so what you see is that Matthew intentionally crossed out certain people so that the number would be 14 each time. So there's a significance in the number 14. And what scholars say, Hebrew scholars say, is that the reason why the number 14 was so important is because if you took the name of King David and you turned those letters into Roman numerals, or not Roman numerals, but just numerals, uh, you, the, the name of David would add up to 14. So even in the numbers that Matthew uses, he was trying to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic prophecies, Okay. But it's not only that. Jesus doesn't just fulfill it in the fact that the numbers add up. That's, that's a cool, fun fact, but this one's even more important. The reason why Jesus is the fulfillment is because Jesus, and I, I, it's going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but I promise you that I am not. By Jesus showing up the way he did, he single-handedly destroys the religion of Judaism. Amen. Judaism died in these 17 verses. You're like, ah, you're, you're over-speaking, man. I don't, I don't think that's true. Here's why. Here's why Judaism died. Remember what I said. There were certain expectations that people had for the coming Messiah. Remember what I said genealogies were important. The reason why genealogies were so important is because you had to prove to people that you were from the right families. One of the things that the Bible says in 2 Samuel is that the Messiah had to be from the line of David. 
In other words, you needed a genealogy in order to prove that you were the Messiah. You couldn't prove you were the Messiah if you didn't have a genealogy. Here's what's crazy. Jesus dies and resurrects right around A.D. 33. In 70 A.D., historians tell us that the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, that might not mean anything to us, but the reason why that's so important is because along with the temple, every single genealogical record was destroyed as well. So, so follow this. The reason why the religion of Judaism still exists is because there are Jews who don't believe Jesus was the promised Messiah. They believe that the Messiah is still going to arrive. Here's the problem, though. Ever since 70 AD, there's no more gene- uh, genealogies to look back at. So, so if, if, if the, the Messiah shows up today in Jerusalem, in Israel, there's no way for him to prove that he is the Messiah because there's no more records. So the last person who claimed to be the son of David was Jesus. The last person who can historically prove he was the son of David was Jesus. No Jew can do that anymore. So it's almost like God just shut the door and said, no more, guys. He's here. There's no more. But that's not it. There's more. He not only shut down uh, 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 Jerusalem because there's no more genealogy. I mean, Judaism, there's no more genealogies. He also shut down uh, 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 Judaism because now that there's no temple, when the temple was destroyed, there's no place to sacrifice anymore. You can't sacrifice anymore. And that's the, the, the heart of the Jewish religion. The whole Old Testament is about Jews going to the temple and making sacrifices. Here's the kicker. Not only is there no temple anymore, but the place where the temple was built, which is Mount Moriah, when Lily and I went to, Lily's not there, I pointed at her, but she's not there. Um, uh, God knows where she is. So, so when, when, Lily and I, when Lily and I went to Israel and we got to the place where the original temple was built, which is the only place where Jews can build the temple, that land is now owned by Muslims. You know the golden dome that you see in Jerusalem? That dome, that golden dome is built where the old temple was. There's a mosque where the temple was. Jews can't even go on that mountain. So the place where the sacrifices were made no longer exists. And Jews in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, they literally have all the supplies they need to build the temple again. The problem is they can have all the supplies they want. They don't have the land to do it. And so God not only shut down the genealogy path, he also shut down the sacrifice path. And then to make matters worse, when we went to Jerusalem, one of the things that surprised us in, in our time of, of traveling through Israel is we had a chance to go to Bethlehem. Well, when we started heading towards Bethlehem, we were about maybe five miles out. And I remember there was like this roadblock and, and these guys with AK-47s come out on our bus and everyone who was Jewish on the bus had to leave. Our tour guide who, has, who had sent us, who had taken us through all of Israel had to leave. Why? Because Bethlehem is now ruled and, 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 and owned by Muslims. Remember, the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem, and a Jew can't come within five miles of Bethlehem. So the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah have no records, no sacrifices, and no birthplace. God, through Jesus, shut down Judaism. That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Okay? Now, here's the thing. 
If Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, right? If he is the individual who we were all looking for, us in general, the Jews in particular, if he is the fulfillment of the promise, then the next thing we have to look at then is what are the implications of that then? How should that affect us then? How should I change as a result of Jesus being the fulfillment? And I would argue that there are two ways that you and I should change if this is true. The first way we should change is that it affirms the rejects. If Jesus really is the fulfillment of the promise, then in the gospel, you have an affirming of the rejects. The rejects are affirmed. The second implication, if this is true, is the religious are humbled. So Jesus shows up, and in being the fulfillment of the promise, he affirms the rejects and humbles the religious. And I don't know about you, but at least in my life, as I go through my walk with Jesus, there's, Sunday, there's some, certain mornings where I get up to read my Bible and I feel like a reject that needs to be affirmed. And there's, some, there's some other days where I get up and I feel like a religious person that needs to be humbled. Jesus came to do both. So regardless of whether you're a reject or a religious person, Jesus is your answer. There are implications for how you live. So let's look at the first implication, right? The first implication, if Jesus truly is the, the fulfillment of this promise, is that Jesus came to affirm the rejects. Guys, listen to me. Follow with me here. If Jesus Christ came to affirm the rejects, then that means regardless of how bad you think you are, there is still hope for you. Listen, the gospel is not about you being good enough for Jesus. It's about Jesus being good enough for you. It's not about your goodness. It's about his grace. It's not about your, you cleaning up your shady record. It's about you resting on his perfect record. It's not about revisionist history. It's about redemptive history. It's not about the blood of your family. It's about the blood of your Savior. Here's what's crazy. If, 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 the, if, if all the forefathers of Jesus are sinners, then what that means, that all the descendants of Jesus are going to be sinners too. And so if they got in, we can get in. And so the first thing Jesus Christ does, if he is the fulfillment of the promise, is he affirms the reject. If you don't think you're good enough, Jesus is saying you're not. That's why I was good enough in your place. And you have a place in my family. Amen? But here's the other thing. Here's the, the, the part that I, I, I expected that part. I didn't expect the other implication. Because if Jesus really is the fulfillment of the promise, not only does he affirm the reject, but he also humbles the religious. Here's, here's what I mean by this. And again, I need you to put your thinking caps on. This is that third implication that I told you you weren't ready for before, because this is crazy. So, so here's what you see. The way that Matthew writes the genealogy, essentially there are seven sevens. There are seven groups of seven, right? Seven, 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 seven. The reason why the number seven is so important in the Old Testament is because the number seven represented completion. It represented perfection, okay? That's what the number seven represented. But here's another thing that it represented, that any Jew who knew their Bibles knew. The number seven represented Sabbath rest. And the reason why is because God creates the world in six days. He rests on the seventh day. So the number seven, not only did it, the reason why it meant completion and perfection is because it represented God being done and now God can rest. Okay? Now here's what happened. God gives this rule to the Jews. He says, listen, Jews, I need you on the seventh day to rest. Then in Leviticus, he takes it to a whole other level. He says, not only do I want you to rest every seventh day, but every seven years, I want you to stop everything you do with the land and give the land a rest. No farming for a year. Right? So every seventh day, humans rested. Every seven years, the land would rest. 
Then in Leviticus chapter 25, God takes it to a whole other level. He says seven times seven, so seven, 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 right? The seventh seven. He says every 49 years, I want not only the land to rest, I want every debt to be canceled. So on the seventh seven, the 49th year, it was called the year of Jubilee. All the land had peace and every debt was canceled. Jesus is the 49th person. Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath, our ultimate jubilee, our ultimate rest. So you know what that does, right? It it humbles the religious person. See, the problem with religious people, some of you, remember the first group? the, The first group thought they were rejects. They thought, I can't go to Jesus because I'm not good enough. This second group, the religious people, they don't go to Jesus because they don't think they're bad enough. Okay? They're trying to save themselves, and they're like, hey, pastor, just give me things to do. What do I got to do? What box do I got to check? How many steps do I got to take? Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 no. You don't get how this works. You need me just as much as the first group does. You need the rest. And so if you're here and you're tired, you're tired of performing, you're tired of keeping the charade up, you're tired of trying to act like things are together when they're not, you're dreading this, this, you know, this, this Christmas time because you got to go in front of your family and act like everything's together when it's not. If you're tired of performing, if you're tired of wearing a mask, Jesus is saying you could take it off. You could rest in me. He says, listen, you don't, you don't have, it's not about your credentials. Listen, to this. it's not about your credentials. It's about the Christ that you worship. It's not about padding your resume. It's about praising the Redeemer. That's what we see. And so you need to get to a place where you realize, hold on, hold on. I can't do this, and I need to stop trying. Some of you just need to, you, there's something you have to do. There's something you have to stop doing. Amen. Stop saving yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to do something that's already been done. That's what you got to realize. Let it go. Rest in him. And here's what's crazy. When you look at this story, not only, this is something that Tim Keller brought up in his book, and I just thought it was so insightful. And this is just further proof that he's humbling the religious. He, he, he uses David, right? He brings up David all of a sudden. Now, David, even with all his mess, he's the one person that you would think, okay, this is the guy you need in your, in your resume. Like, this is the type of guy you need. If everyone was like David, you would have the best genealogy ever, Jesus, right? But what's crazy, and this is what Tim Keller says, is that when he brings up David, he says that he was the husband of Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba, is the woman who he has sex with who wasn't his wife, and then he kills her husband, right? But it almost seems what you would think, because he doesn't mention Bathsheba's name, that he's attacking Bathsheba. But what scholars say, and Tim Keller says in particular, he says what he's actually doing is he's attacking David. He's going after David's reputation, not hers. And so so think think about it. The only person that's actually resume-worthy, the only person who made him look good, Matthew goes out of his way to make him look bad. You know why? Because he wants you to know that through the gospel, kings and prostitutes are the same. We all sit at the same table, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're a prostitute, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're black, whether you're white, we all sit at the same table. Nobody is better than anybody else. And you know the reason why the Jews missed it? Like some of you might be thinking, wait a second, hold on, I'm confused. Because I'm listening here. And you told me about the genealogy. You told me about the sacrifices. You told me about the whole Bethlehem thing. Why would Jews not believe in Jesus? It's so clear that he's the Messiah. You know why they didn't believe in Jesus? They didn't believe in Jesus because what they wanted was religion, not rest. When he came to give rest, they're like, we don't need rest. We need more rules. We need more things to do. 
What do you mean I'm a sinner? No, 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 no. You, you got to deliver me from my enemies. And Jesus is like, I am, and the enemy is you. They didn't see him because they didn't want him. They didn't. They wanted religion, not rest. Some of you right now might be making the same mistake. You go, oh, yeah, I want Jesus. Jesus is great. I'm going to add him to my spiritual portfolio. No, 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 no. Either Jesus saves you or he wants nothing to do with you. Either you're saving yourself or Jesus is saving you. Jesus came, listen to this, to affirm the rejects and to humble the religious. So what that means is that no one is bad enough to not receive the gospel and no one is good enough to not receive the gospel. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're at, and if you're like me, sometimes you have reject days and sometimes you have religious days. Some days I think I'm not good enough for the gospel, and sometimes I think, man, the gospel's not good enough for me. (laughs) Jesus shows up, and he affirms me when I'm down, and he humbles me when I'm up. And he says, I am your answer. If I am the fulfillment of the promise, then there are major implications for the person who receives it. Okay? So listen, I don't know where you are this morning. I'm not sure what your background is. I'm not sure what you've done. I don't know where where you've been. But what I do know, though, is that regardless of whether you see yourself as a reject who doesn't deserve it or uh, 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 a religious person who thinks it's not worth it, Jesus is where you have to go. And praise be to God that the genealogy has a bunch of rejects in it because it's the only type of people there are. They are. I would pray that this morning would be the day that you embrace Jesus. And I feel that to to the degree that you understand the promise of Jesus, to that same degree you will be the person of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.